So I read a blog post uh, this past week about a Christian who went on a two-week mission trip overseas. They went to a place where there was no local church, and many of the people they were encountering had not even heard of the name of Jesus Christ. And they would spend a few days in each location preaching the gospel and then move on to the next. And they were excited when some people showed enthusiasm in the gospel and even placed their faith in Jesus Christ. But as I read through this article, the blog writer was saying how when she got back home, she actually had a bad feeling about what had happened. Yes, some had believed in Jesus, but what was this person going to do now? Would they stay a follower of Jesus? Would they find other believers? Who would teach them? Who would train them if there was no church there? See, last week we talked about how the mission of the church is to glorify God, and then we further talked about how evangelization of the lost is one of the primary means in which we glorify God. As 1 Peter says, and as I quoted earlier, we proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. And so we looked at the great commission that Jesus gave in Matthew 28 before he ascended into heaven, where he said, Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. But this command doesn't end there. Because Jesus goes on to say, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. See, the Great Commission really has three parts. It has the evangelization of the lost or the preaching of the gospel, which we talked about last week. It has the baptizing of those who place their faith in Jesus Christ in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, which we talked about a few weeks ago. But then we have a third part, which is just as important as the first two, which is teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. So that is to say, preaching the gospel, gospel and baptizing the confessor is not completing the Great Commission. It's partly completing the task, but not fully completing the task. There must be an intentional training and teaching of those who come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. And what we're teaching them is the truths of the faith, and we're teaching them how to grow in holiness and obedience to the commands of Jesus. This is broadly what we call the process of discipleship. And so then that blog writer that I mentioned earlier was on to something. You know, evangelism without discipleship is incomplete. See, they come together as a package deal where both are needed. When Jesus saves us, he brings us into a community of other believers who help us grow in our walk with the Lord. And this is a a lifelong event. It's not only for new converts that need discipleship, but every single Christian. Every single Christian needs to grow more and more in holiness and obedience to our Lord and Savior. And so this week, that is what we're going to be looking at. The eighth mark of a healthy church is that it disciples one another. And the sermon is going to have two parts to it. First, we're going to look at why discipleship matters. Why discipleship matters. And then second, the practice of discipleship. What discipleship looks like. And so first, 
why does discipleship matter? But before we answer that question, I think there's, there's a bigger question that first needs to be answered. You see, when you ask the question, why does something matter? What you're really asking is, is that thing important? You know, is that thing necessary or worth pursuing? And so the question underlining why does discipleship matter is really, what is the purpose of discipleship? Why is it important? Why is it necessary? And to answer that question, I want us to turn in our Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 to 10. And if you don't have a Bible but would like one, there's some Bibles at the back there that you can grab and uh, read along with us if you would like. So many of us are familiar with this passage. It's a, it's a wonderful passage that I'll read for us this morning. Ephesians 2, starting in verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now this is a wonderful passage of the Bible. Paul makes it very clear here that salvation comes by grace alone through faith alone. The eternal life that we have received from God is not because of anything that we have done or anything that we could do. It is solely a gift of God. See, when you stand before God, when you stand before the judgment seat of Christ, you don't come to God bringing Him your good deeds saying, Lord, look at what I have done. Please forgive me. See, your, your works could never, no matter how many you stacked up, no matter how hard you tried, they could never remove the, the stain of sin that covers you. See, it's only as the hymn writer says, not in the labor of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. See, salvation is purely a gift from God given by the grace of God to be received solely by faith in the promises of God. And so our works do not earn or gain us any favor before the Lord. But it would be a mistake then to think that our works are not important. See, Paul says that this glorious gift of God, of, of His free grace to us, was for a purpose. Verse 10 says, For we are God's workmanship, created in Jesus, for what? To do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. In other words, we aren't saved by our good works, but we are saved unto good works. And this isn't just taught here in the Bible. Romans 8 verse 29, For those whom God foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. See, why did God predestine us? Well, He predestined us that we might be conformed to the image of His Son. 
Or 2 Timothy 1 verse 9. He saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. And so again, God saved us that we might live a life of holiness. You see, what God is doing by by calling us to holiness is restoring what once was in the Garden of Eden. See, in the Garden of Eden before the fall, God was in fellowship and community with humanity with no barrier of sin. God was sinless. Adam and Eve were sinless. And there was this perfect and sweet harmony that existed between God and man. But then sin came. And it destroyed all of that. It it broke the relationship and community that existed between the, the still sinless God and now sinful man. And as we read through the Bible, we see that the grand plan of salvation that is unfolding throughout it is a restoration of what once was in the Garden of Eden. See, the Bible begins in the Garden of Eden, but it also ends in a greater Garden of Eden. Revelation 21, verse 3 to 4, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former way of things has passed away. See, God is restoring what is lost. That is really what the Bible is about. God restoring what he originally created, and then he is glorified because of it. And so what his plan is, is that there would be a holy people together with him in holy communion. And in our passage, Paul says that God has done this through his gift of grace in Jesus Christ. See, he has has made us holy and he has justified us before him. But it was for a purpose. That we would not only be justified before God as holy, but that our lives would reflect our status before God as holy. And so the church then, as the possession of God, should strive to be like our God. Jesus says we are to be holy as our Father in heaven is holy. And now, we all know our own lives, and we know that uh, we are not holy as God is holy. And if that is our purpose, will we ever satisfy or reach our purpose? One thing I want to encourage you in is that success in this area is not measured by perfection. See, success is measured by progress. When you have a a child, let's say in your family, and you're, you're teaching them math, and they're really struggling with math, you know, you don't consider growth or success as them immediately getting 100% on every test. No, you consider it a success if they're, if they're improving, if they're growing and getting better, if they go from a 50 to maybe a 60, and then they go from a 60 to a 70, and a 70 to a 75. See, it's, it's progress that is success, not necessarily perfection, even though perfection is the goal that we strive for. Just like on a test, 100% is the goal that you strive for. And so the same is true with the Christian walk. We want to be seeing 
this progress in our lives. Growth in holiness. Growth in, in your treatment of your spouse. Growth in your treatment of your children. Growth in love for your neighbor. Growth in victory over those sins that, that dominate your life. Pride and lust and anxiety and gossip and greed and whatever sin it is that you have been battling. The goal is to be day by day more and more conformed to the perfect image of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And so then, moving backwards now to our question, why is discipleship important? Why does discipleship matter? Well, the answer is, it matters because holiness matters. See, we saw in our passage that God has saved us for a purpose. The reason he poured his grace upon us, gave us the gift of salvation, is that we might walk in the good works that he has prepared for us and be conformed to the image of our Savior. That is God's purpose in the grand plan of redemption. That is your purpose as a Christian, as a believer, to be one who is holy and set apart for the Lord. Now you might say, okay, I get that we need to be holy, but how does this then where's the jump to discipleship? How does this relate to discipleship? Can I just pursue holiness on my own? I mean, I've got, the, I've got the Holy Spirit in me. I've got my Bible with me. Is that not everything that I need? Well, unfortunately, it's not. You see, the, the Bible lays it out pretty clearly for us that the Christian walk cannot be done on our own. And history has shown over and over again that the sheep who thinks that he can do it on his own, the sheep who thinks he can wander away from the flock is the first one to be devoured by the wolf. Now, I haven't properly defined discipleship yet. I've been using the term, but you may have no clue as to what I'm meaning when I say the word discipleship. Uh, So here it is. Discipleship is intentional relationships where we seek to stir on, teach, rebuke, and build one another up in order to fulfill our call of being conformed to the image of Christ. I'll say that again. It's got a couple parts to it. Discipleship is intentional relationships where we seek to stir on, teach, rebuke, and build one another up in order to fulfill our call of being conformed to the image of Christ. Of Christ. And you see, that is what the Christian needs to grow in holiness, along with the Spirit, along with the Word of God. And so discipleship matters then because holiness matters. Discipleship is key to helping us fulfill our purpose of becoming like Christ. I'm not sure if, if you have seen uh, one of those Tough Mudder races before. You know, they were really all the rage about five years ago, and essentially what you're doing is you're, you're racing across this difficult terrain. There's these barriers you need to climb, these walls you need to get over. You've got to go through these wet mud pits and crawling under and through obstacles all to get to the finish line. And one thing that I noticed about uh, these races is that people are helping other people out all the time. You know, they're, they're giving each other boosts over the obstacles. They're forming these human chains to, to help someone climb up a barrier. They're, 
they're lifting one another out of these wet mud pits and they're cheering and encouraging one another. You know, and in, in many instances, most people wouldn't finish the race if they didn't have other people to help them along. And the same is true with the Christian walk. You see, we have many obstacles, trials, temptations, these, these mud pits that keep us down and, and from reaching the goal of holiness at the end of the race. And to help us, God gives us others that run the race with us. God gives us the church, our brothers and sisters in Christ who are there when, when we are tired and need encouragement to finish the race. You know, they're, they're there when we're, we're straying from the, the course and the path and we need direction on how to get back uh, on the right track. They're there when we encounter something that we've maybe never seen before, some weird new situation, but because they have encountered it before, they can show us how to do it. You know, they're there when we need a, a little bit of an extra boost, you know, when we're, we're close but not quite able to do it on our own. It's why we see so many one another commands in the Bible. 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 11. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. Or Galatians 6 verse 2. Carry each other's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ. Or Hebrews 3 verse 12 to 13. See to it, brothers, that none of you has a wicked heart of unbelief that turns away from the living God, but exhort one another daily as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. See, if you want to grow in holiness and thus fulfill the purpose for which God has saved you, you need other believers to come alongside you in that process. And that's why discipleship matters. Now moving on to the second half of our sermon, we know that discipleship matters, but what then does discipleship actually look like? You know, how do I, how do I pursue this in my own life? And this leads to the second point of our sermon, the practice of discipleship. And for this section, I want you to turn your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25. And this passage was quoted a lot during, our, uh, during the times of COVID. Uh, and I think that uh, there is so much wisdom and practicality in this, in this passage as a template for really the life of the church, how the church is to live and act. And so this is Hebrews 10, verses 24 to 25. This is what he says. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. I'm going to read that again. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing 
near. And so there are four aspects of discipleship that I want to highlight from this passage. First, discipleship should be intentional. Discipleship should be intentional. He uses the word here, consider. Consider how to stir one another up. Or some translations say, let us take thought or contemplate how to stir one another up. In other words, you can't just sit back and expect discipleship to happen. You need to be intentional about it. You need to be actively thinking of ways to stir one another up and active in building these relationships where you can speak truth and have, have truth spoken into your life. You know, maybe something as simple as, hey, could we meet once a month to go over a book together or pray together or, or just talk about a theological truth that I'm wrestling with together? Or it could be something like, could you help me get started on family worship with my family? Or could I come over and, and watch how you're schooling and training your children so I can grow in that? Or why don't you come and join me for an evening of evangelism? See, if you aren't intentional about forming these relationships where you can disciple and be discipled, they likely aren't going to happen. That's the truth of it. And so he says, consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. Second, discipleship is for the purpose of stirring one another up to good works and encouragement. Back in Ephesians 2, we saw that that is our purpose, to walk in good works. And we see here that the purpose of discipleship is to lead us towards this walking in good works. And that word stir up means to incite, to incite one another, provoke one another to do good works and love. See, that's the, the purpose of these intentional relationships that we are forming. We don't just do it so that we have another buddy, you know, someone to watch the Leafs game with or someone to join us on our, our shopping trip. We do it for the purpose of stirring one another up. Now, you can, as you're watching the Leafs game, as you're shopping, be doing these things, stirring one another up and encouraging one another. You know, discipleship doesn't mean that every time you meet, you have to be sitting down and, and studying the Bible and praying together. Discipleship can and should happen as you're, as you're doing all of these other things. You know, Jesus, the one we look to, is, is the prime example of discipleship. And what we see with his life is he pretty much just hung out with his disciples, and as he did, he sought opportunities to teach them and model to them what it meant to, to be someone who lives in the kingdom of God. And so the point isn't every time you meet together, you need to be teaching a theology lesson. The point is, whatever you're doing, use it for the purpose of stirring one another up on, onto good works. I remember one time I joined a basketball group at a church, and I was uh, excited, and the group was meant to be a sort of uh, outreach and discipleship kind of ministry. But slowly the devotions became infrequent and eventually disappeared. Slowly the prayer that we began with became infrequent and started to disappear. And soon it was just a bunch of people playing basketball with zero intentionality 
of evangelism or discipleship. See, we lost the focus of the ministry of stirring one another up unto good works. And so then, what, is it, what does it look like to stir one another up to good works? Well, I think we have a few examples for us in, in, in God's Word. Titus 2, verse 4 to 5, for example, is a good one for women in the church. This is what Paul says regarding uh, older women, mature women in the church. He says, let them urge the younger woman to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind and to be subject to their husbands so that no one will malign the word of God. And so Paul here, he's he's describing for us, he's picturing a a discipleship relationship where the older women or the women who are, are mature in the church are going and imparting this wisdom to the younger woman and stirring them up to good work, showing them what it means to do these things. Or a similar example for men is given in 2 Timothy 2 verse 2. Paul's writing to Timothy and he says, What you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. And so Paul here pictures Timothy who's, who's being taught by him then going and taking what he has taught and bringing it to other men. And specifically bring it to other men who are then going to go and bring that to other men. This, this chain of, of teaching men for the mutual edification of the church. Or another example, Galatians 6 verse 1. Brothers, if anyone is caught in a transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. See, we are to rebuke one another and do so in a spirit of gentleness. You know, when you see your brother or sister in sin and you you gently go and you bring them back in order to restore them to the holiness that God has called us to. That is, that is a call for the Christian. Our last one, Hebrews 3 verse 13, which I read earlier. So he talks about people uh, having a, a hard heart, an unbelieving heart, and he says the solution to that, but exhort one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So we're called to, to exhort. God has prescribed a solution for unbelief in a believer. That solution is other believers coming alongside them and exhorting them, encouraging them to press on in faithfulness. You know, when you see someone is having a hard time, encouraging them that the prize at the end is worth it and that they need to finish the race strong. It's, a, it's encouraging them in their successes and then seeking to, to help them and walk alongside them in their weaknesses. And Hannah and I, we have some really good friends who I've, I've benefited from in this area so much. They've raised their children and trained them in the fear and admonition of the Lord. And Hannah and I were seeking in our parenting model to, to, to do what they have done, to, to, to model after them as, as an example to us of holiness. And one time we were having a hard time with one of our girls. I remember we were at their house and it was in the middle of Bible study that I, and I was, um, I think I was teaching the Bible study and one of my daughters uh, really was just giving us a difficult time. She needed to be uh, talked to and, and disciplined. And there was a point where I had to leave a few times 
and I was getting very tired and, and even a little bit embarrassed um, because, because of what was going on. But I remember as I came back into the room, everyone was kind of there waiting for me, and my friend looked up at me and he said something very simple, but that has stuck with me. All he said was, you're doing a good job, Lucas, keep going. You see, it was a, a little encouragement like that that can go such a long way in stirring up one another to good works and love. And that's what we're called to do. Now, the third aspect of discipleship is that discipleship must involve gathering. So first, it must be intentional. It must be for the purpose of stirring one another up. And third, it must involve gathering together. Look at verse 25. Not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some. You see, you can't stir one another up without being with someone or speaking together. Now, I can't say that I'm, I'm heavily involved in the process of discipleship when the only other time that I see Christians is for an hour and a half on Sunday morning. You know, is this how, is this how Jesus approached his relationship with the men that he was discipling? Well, that was nice, guys. Thanks for coming to the synagogue on the Sabbath. I'll see you again in a week next Sabbath. No, he, he spent time with his disciples, modeling to them, teaching them, doing life with them. See, discipleship is, is far more effective when we know the person deeply and personally through spending time with them. It's what allows you to accurately uh, look into their lives and then impart the wisdom of God into their situation. And so I've, I've said this before, but I want to say it again. Don't just be a Sunday Christian. Don't just be a Sunday Christian because it will hinder your growth in holiness and Christlikeness if that is all that you boil your fellowship with other Christians down to. Discipleship must be intentional. It must be for the purpose of storing up and it must involve the gathering of the saints. And now lastly, the final aspect of discipleship is that it becomes more and more necessary as times get harder, as the end draws near. Paul says that we are to gather for encouragement all the more as you see the day drawing near. See, when things get difficult, when we're facing trials, one of the natural instincts we can have is to just withdraw, to shrink back. You know, perhaps we're We are in sin, and we need to be rebuked for our sin, and we're embarrassed because of our sin. And so we withdraw as a result of that. Or perhaps, uh, as is is the case with the Hebrews, it's getting more and more risky to gather as the saints to disciple one another. But either way, Paul says, when the times get hard, when the day draws near, don't withdraw away, but rather do the opposite. Come together even more to encourage one another even more. To be there for one another even more. As the day approaches, so should our urgency to be stirring one another up to good works. And so we see, we, we, we've seen that as Christians, we, we can't ignore this call to holiness. And if we're, we're not going to ignore our call to holiness, then, well, we can't ignore our call to discipleship. We can't ignore our call to make intentional relationships where we seek to stir on, teach, rebuke, and build one another up in the Lord in order to fulfill our call of being conformed 
to the image of Christ. Now, the reason that we're doing this, ser- this, this series on the marks of a healthy church is that we want to be a church that reflects the, the design that God has given us in Scripture for the church. And so if we are, are wanting then to be a church seeking to display this type of community and discipleship, what are some ways going forward that we can do that? You might be thinking to yourself, I want to grow as a Christian. I want to help others grow as Christians. But, but where do I start? How do I start? I want to quickly finish up by giving us four areas where, where we can grow in discipleship. First is to join some sort of small group or something like that. Now you may have noticed I'm a big proponent of small groups, and that's for a reason. It's because in my own Christian life, small groups have served to grow me more as a Christian probably than any other ministry of the church. So not only am I being taught by others, but I get to witness them live it out. You know, it's, it's, it's such an, an easy and open and non-intimidating way to begin this process of growing in discipleship with other Christians. So join a small group. Second, do family worship. You see, many of the people that God has placed in your life to disciple is your, your children, your family that is around you. And one of the ways to do that is through the process of family worship, intentionally sitting down together, going over the scriptures, praying together, singing together. When you're with your children, you know, talking to them about the things of the Lord, encouraging them when they ask questions, encouraging them to ask more, you know, showing them what it means to be someone who is seeking and worshiping the Lord. Be an example to your children. So third, be hospitable. Have people over to your house. Get to know people in the church. I don't know about you, but I can find it, I, I find it pretty hard to get to know someone simply by talking to them on a Sunday morning. You know, the conversations are usually not very deep. They're usually about the same things week in and week out. It's, it's, it's when we have people over and we sit down and, and chat and, and build those relationships throughout the week where we we're really deepen in our love and our, our serving of one another through discipling one another. And this is the model of the early church, you know, all throughout the book of Acts. They were constantly meeting in their homes, having meals together, and discipling one another simply by the, the, the practice of hospitality. And then finally, don't wait for others to make the first move. You don't wait for others to start something or to invite you over. Be the one to start it. Be the one to extend the invitation. Remember that we're told, consider how to stir one another up daily. You know, don't just say, I'm waiting for them to consider how to stir me up daily. You go consider how to stir one another up. It might be a simple text message of, hey, does your family want to come over to dinner on Thursday? I mean, you're going to be eating dinner on Thursday anyway, so you may as well invite a family over to join you. Or, hey, could we read this book together? I, I, I'm wanting to read this book, and it'd be nice to have someone to read it with where we can chat about what I'm reading. You know, this could be the start of a wonderful relationship of mutual edification. And so don't, don't wait for others to make the first move. And so there you have it. Four 
four ways to grow in discipleship. Small groups, family worship, hospitality, and making the first move. And if we're honest, you know, you, you look at those things I've given you, it's not a very heavy burden that I'm putting on your back. It's not, it's not really difficult to do these things. But they do take effort, and they do take time. You know, I've been told by many people, and I've said it myself, that you always have time for the things that you love. See, if you want to grow in Christ-likeness, if you want to grow in holiness, if you want to stir one another up unto love and good works, you will. You will find the time and energy to do it. And so the question is, do you actually want that? Do you actually want to, to grow in, in, in your conformity to the image of Christ? Do you want to, to be someone who sees victory over your sin and growth in love and intimacy with the Lord and with the, the people of God that he has ransomed alongside of you? Well, you can't do that on your own. You can't run the race on your own. You need others. And God has graciously given you others, your brothers and sisters in Christ, to help, encourage, and keep you on track to finish that race strong. And so, Evergreen, our, the, the challenge for us is that we take up this wonderful task of discipling one another to the glory of God. Let's pray.